0: You guys ready to get just a little bit spooky? It's Halloween 2018 for those hearkening back from the future. And I really want to talk about, do you ever have, I'm sure you do, you have this like kooky or nutty or slightly obsessive little corner of your mind where things gather energies for reasons beyond your understanding. Well, I have one of those. Like, actually I actually have a couple of those. People who are lost to history, like I just watched uh, not too long ago, uh, "Faulty Towers. And in the very first episode of the ancient John Cleese and Connie Booth comedy, "Faulty Towers, in 1975, I think, there's some blonde woman. This couple comes down in this hotel, and they didn't get their wake-up call, and they're in a big hurry. And there's this blonde woman who has no line. She's just the companion of the guy with the glasses she doesn't show up in the credits, I don't think. Just who knows who she is, you know? At some point, people will absolutely forget who she was, and she'll never be known again. I have this lost-to-history aspect of my brain. I just have a lot of emotional energy around there, probably because it was my own fear. But here's another one. I am absolutely fascinated by mythical creatures. I, I mean, This comes probably to some degree from Dungeons and & Dragons and I love of Lord of the Rings and all that other kind of stuff, but I am absolutely fascinated by... Ghosts and vampires and ghosts and whites and zombies and you know but I find them really powerful. And I don't believe in any of it. <laughs> but I have a huge amount of like, bong, kind of Chinese bell resonance with this kind of stuff. And so given that it's Halloween, I thought I would unpack uh, a brain dump of thoughts about the supernatural. All stories that last long have some resonance to people. That's a kind of a cliched statement. And I've done a lot of examination in myth and and storytelling and so on. For those who don't know, I spent uh, almost two years at the National Theatre School of Canada studying acting and playwriting, and I've written like 30 plays. I've written like five novels, hundreds of poems, and I really find the exploration of fiction and myth and storytelling to be just incredibly powerful and it is i sort of one one foot in the rational empirical objective external world and one world in the jungian archetype deep exploration of myth and and the power of story within the mind so i have had some thoughts over the years probably too many maybe if i dump them all out now uh, they'll be gone i will in in a sense have exercised them for my brain but The supernatural I find fascinating, and and one of the things I think it shows, supernatural kind of being defined as anthropomorphizing usually the dead and having them live on not just in memory, not just in story, not just in the effects upon your personality and your life and your happy and sad and all that kind of stuff, but in some external ectoplasmic, empirical manner, like the dead walk, not just in your mind, but out there in the world. The chains are not mental, but rattle down the hallways of 19th century manners, often populated by stinging a turtleneck for reasons I can't quite figure (laughs) out. But what is the supernatural? To me, it is the projection of the unconscious into the world. And I'll go into that in in more detail. So we have this massive processing beast of a brain. I mean, there's our gut brain and then there's our subconscious brain. Our subconscious brain has been clocked at 8,000 times faster than our conscious mind sometimes. It is the accumulated base of the pyramid buildup to the post-monkey beta expansion pack we currently call (laughs) somewhat buggy and flawed human reasoning. And what churns and, and yearns within us is a lot to contain within our minds because we often identify with our conscious mind. But our conscious mind, to me, reasoning is kind of like a laser. If you have one of those little laser pointers that you play with cats with and so on, if you have a laser pointer and it's pitch black in the woods, can you imagine trying to find your way through the woods using a laser pointer? You kind of could, but it's the wrong tool for the job. So I view the subconscious as like a full moon. You can navigate quite well, but it's still kind of murky. And I view the conscious mind, not as as sunlight, because that's vastly superior for navigation. But as a laser, it's very good at illuminating individual things, but it doesn't give you much of a big picture view. To have a holistic, rich life, you need to include all of the evolutionary and and deep and powerful myths and archetypes and stories that, that move and juice us deep down. And I think one of the things that's happened in the post-rationalist world where we substituted the state for religion is the stories of the state are not particularly powerful and usually involve violence, warfare, and incarceration, but the stories of religion are deep and powerful and constituted a more full view of our minds and hearts and souls for want of a better word. Now, so I believe, and I've made this case regarding God and against the gods, that most of what we call miracles or the supernatural or mystical phenomenon are a lack of ego or boundary definition between our subconscious and the world as a whole. And most of human history, this is really, really important to understand. In most of human history, we've had a moral sense, a very powerful moral sense. And the moral sense comes almost as a shallow cast by the incredibly evolutionary, powerful advantage of universalization, of universalization to to universalize and to abstract and universalize is the essence of our human nature, of our human reasoning. And when you can develop things like physics and, and science and mathematics and, and uh, biology and, and these abstractions that go beyond the immediate sense data to larger principles. It inevitably spills over into, into ethics, into morality. But the problem is that for most of human history, if you attempted to actually apply moral standards universally, you were killed. You were killed either physically or you were killed Sexually, like you were ostracized from sexual access from women, of course, if you were a man, from men, if you were a woman, and then your genes died. So, the genes of universalization for uh, physics and warfare you need some basic physics to be good at warfare, like uh, and so on. I had a ballista and a longbow and all that kind of stuff, how to work with uh, bronze and, and steel and iron. So you need some universalization for warfare, and that's very powerful. You need universalization to be effective as a farmer. You need some animal husbandry. You need to know how to plant winter crops like turnips. You need to know crop rotation. You need to know nitrogen and fertilizer and and, and so on. So you need some universalization, some abstraction to be economically productive. But if those abstractions then also spill over to morality, it is a very, very dangerous game because when you look at the king and you say the king is just a man. He is not Geppetto Puppet of Divine Powers. He is not appointed by God. There is no divine right of kings. He's just some guy. Then Macbeth style, you might choose to um well, replace him or to not obey him. And so when it comes to practical production in the here and now, ghosts don't really help. Like if you say, well I don't really want to hire people to bring my crops in. Like, I don't want to hire people to go and scythe my corn or pick my fruit or whatever because I built my farm on an ancient battlefield and I'm just going to have those ghosts do it for me Well, the ghosts aren't going to do it for you so you end up hungry and starving to death and or you can't pay your taxes and you end up in jail or whatever it is, right? So if in the realm of mere production, of practical production, you rely on the supernatural, you're not going to do very well. On the other hand, if you attempt to bring that same objectivity and universalization to moral questions, you tend not to do very well. There's an old saying I've always loved. It says, treason doth never prosper. What's the reason? (laughs) Why, if it prosper, none dare call it treason. And so, given that human beings have been largely viciously and terminally often punished for bringing the same universal abstractions that make us so economically productive to the moral realm, then what happens is we have a huge block to our universalization. And that block doesn't stop, right? It doesn't stop the thoughts. It simply means that they go elsewhere. So to me, the supernatural is where we put our moral reasoning and our sense of predation, our sense of danger, and our sense of karma it's where we dump all of that stuff because we're unable to talk about it and express it throughout most of human history. And even now, look at the political correctness stuff and the destroying of people's you know, channels, lives, incomes, relationships, jobs, you name it, right? So it's very hard to talk about moral universalizations, but we yearn for them. And they're very much keyed into the same mechanisms that produce the powerful ideas that we have in, in science and mathematics and engineering and all these other kinds of things. and and the basic productivity of empirically working with reality. See, rulers want you to be rational and empirical and logical when it comes to material production, but they do not want those same universals applied to a moral analysis of society. So there's an old um, argument from Martin Luther, like 1.0, where one of the contradictions in the Bible that he was trying to resolve was the Bible says an eye for an eye, right? If you, someone, if you put out someone's eye, your eye should be put out. There's retributionary justice. And then the Bible also says, turn the other cheek. If your enemy asks you to walk a mile, walk two miles. If he asks for your cloak, give him your shirt as well. And he tried to resolve all of that. There's lots of different ways that that is resolved. And Martin Luther in the uh, 16th century said, the way it works is this. If you harm the king, then it's an eye for an eye. You must be punished. If the king harms you, it turned the other cheek, right? So again, you have these contradictions. The secular power can uh, harm you and you should not respond, but if you harm the secular power, the secular power must respond. That asymmetry is really tough and if he had gone any other way, we probably wouldn't have ever had a Protestant Reformation and a Monty Python sketch. So, the supernatural is where we put our thwarted moral universalization. And we can put it there because it is a relatively harmless discharge of our violated and outraged moral sense. So i to make the case for that. So let's look at something kind of easy to begin with, which is ghosts. So the typical, I know that there's tons and tons of myths, but the typical narrative, at least in the West of a ghost is something like this. Bob is killed in some gruesome, horrible manner, unjustly, right? He was not It was not self-defense. He was murdered. Bob was murdered. Bob's murderer got away with it. Got away with it. And the story then goes something like this, that Bob haunts the location of his murder and frightens people and alarms people and moans and groans and rattles his chains until whoever murdered Bob is caught, and the crime is brought to light. And then Bob can, with a deep sigh, rest easy, move on, finally go to rest, and so on. Now, that's not too complicated to figure out. And I view this particularly, most of the ethics that we actually deal with in a practical terms has to do with our family, in particular, our extended family, to some smaller degree, our friends, and in descending waves of efficacy or or power or authority it goes out to you know the government and and so on right so like we can we can manage our own money we can't really have much effect on the monetary policies of the central banks and so on so ghosts what does that mean if we think of it in terms of family very few families are dealing with murders, you know, as out of cartel families and so on, right? But very few families are dealing with murders, but the murder, and there's a great book called Soul Murder about this. Murder is the physical murder, and there's the soul murder as well. Now, the soul murder is what occurs when your last gasp of authentic self is extinguished by truly psychopathic, narcissistic, entitled, demanding, overbearing, bullying, people around you, usually parents, can be priests, can be teachers, can be um, professors, can be in a number of things. But it's when you finally give up thinking for yourself and you just say, okay, well, the only way I can really survive is to conform to the irrational, crazy absolutes of those around me. I can't fight back. I can't escape, usually as a child. And therefore, I am going to not just give up my own identity, my own thoughts. But give up even the idea of my identity and my own thoughts as a good thing, as a positive thing. It's not like, well, I've got to hide my true self from the bullies around me, but I'm going to hold tight. I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to keep it precious. And then when I'm an adult, I'm going to work to reclaim and expand and write. No, it is when you say, you you have an ego merge with the abuser, right? So you say, my abuser is right, I'm wrong, I'm flawed, I'm bad. And it's not that I'm going to conform to the will of my abuser as a survival strategy out of necessity because it's too dangerous not to. But you flip over and you say, my abuser is good, my true self is bad. And the it's not, not just a way to survive, it's, a way to, it's the only way to be good is to mirror the behavior of the abuser. Now, when you flip that switch, and I hope you haven't, but if you have or you know somebody who's flipped that switch, then that's a soul murder, as far as I sort of would define the term. Your organic original personality has been wet-fingered on a candle snuffed out by relentless control and abuse and, and violence and possibly a sexual abuse and so on. But you can't have a self anymore and... It's the chilling ending of, of 1984, right? I'm going to spoil it because, you know, it's been out since 1948. You know, he just switched the numbers, right? In 1984, the which is really the story of the mind of a murderer. I mean, George Orwell, Eric Blair, did actually go and, and, and murder people in Spain. Uh, you can read about this in... Um, His book on his experiences, homage to Catalonia, his experiences in Spanish Civil War, he did kill people. So in 1984, the hero in the totalitarian regime, they say, it's not, and I always remember this. I remember this when I first read it as a teenager. O'Brien says something like this. He says, we made mistakes in the past. We would capture people who were opposed to the realm. And we would break them and then we would parade them around and then we would kill them. But what happened was everyone figured out that we had broken them and we looked bad. And they remembered only the heroic stuff that these resistance people did. They didn't remember the sort of broken shells that we paraded around before we killed them. So we've changed our tactics. And now we don't try to break people and then kill them when they are uh, broken, parade them around as as examples of, of our power. Now what we do is we shatter them to the point where they love the totalitarian state. They love Big Brother. And that, of course, is what happens. And that is the ego death. And the ego death is necessary for totalitarianism because you have to be broken by your family before you can be inhabited by the state. Like the, the family has to be the evil priest that drives out the ghosts of your true self before the demon of the state can fully take up residence. You You can't take up residence in a body populated by an identity. You have to first drive out that identity, and then you are an empty, unwitting shell that can be manipulated by the state. Collectivism is what occurs after children have been broken by brutal upbringings. It is not something that occurs through the eloquence of dictators. It is not something that occurs through the spread of laws. It is something that occurs because people are already broken, and then the state can move in unopposed and unresisted, which is... One of the reasons why Christians are small-state people and leftists tend to be big-state people because leftists have had the depth of their personalities usually scoured out by not just hyper-controlling, but the love of hyper-control, which is political correctness, right? So anyway, that's that's perhaps a topic for another time. But the soul murder is is important. And when you see the dead who are alive in supernatural stories, what I believe that you're actually seeing is this concept of soul murder, that you have spiritually died, your true self has been extinguished, and it's not being held close to you, but there is um, a, a um, possession, right? Demonic possession and so on is uh, when you have been brutalized, and then evil can move in unopposed because you have bonded with uh, brutalizers who are usually evil. So if you look at the story of ghosts within the context of families. There are a lot of crimes within families. There are a lot of crimes within families. If you look at at these statistics of pedophilia, and of child rape, and of child sexual abuse, or just child sexual inappropriate behavior, premature premature sexual experiences, and so on, there's a lot of creepy and nasty stuff. And there's a lot of elites who seem to be kind of into that stuff, which makes sense in a horrible kind of way. But even if we sort of put that to one side, although it's a big topic, there is... Uh, beatings, there are open face slappings, there are withholdings of food, there is neglect, there is withholding of medical care and attention, there is uh, uh, indoctrination in anti-rational systems of thought all over the world, and there is verbal abuse, and there is uh, just an enormous amount of harm that is poured upon children, because the, the prejudice against children as fully realized human beings is astonishing. You know, people talk about dehumanizing and the other and uh, sexism and so on. No, the, the, the only fundamental prejudice that matters in this world is childism, is the bigotry against children. It's the belief that children can be used for sexual access. Children can be used as poison containers to dump your emotional garbage in. Children can be used as puppets to beat around to vent your frustration with your life and the world. People can be used, uh, children can just be used. They are barely human. They are, uh, this is a a common belief throughout the world as a whole. And uh, you can look at it, of course, in, in more primitive cultures and countries, but it's a very powerful form of prejudice in the world of the West, right? I mean, children are used as economic leverage points for adults to borrow, to, um, prevent the need to control the size and power of the state. So this is national debt is a form of unbelievable exploitation of the young Uh, government schools, which are terrible for children, but they're convenient for adults. And lots of women get great jobs out of it. And summer's often governments get to indoctrinate and the left gets their union fees shoveled to them. And uh, the idea that we would design a system of education based upon the objective needs of the children, with the children being in charge of the way things went with negotiation with experts and with adults is something that's inconceivable to us. Uh, We basically mentally enslave children and we exploit them financially horribly, even to the point of telling them they have to go to college to get garbage degrees and massive amounts of student debt. So we don't look... You know, if, if, if there was some law that was proposed that said the government is going to choose your job for you, people would say, well, that's insane. But the idea that the government chooses where children go to school... And what they learn, it's worse than the government choosing your job. Because what is inflicted upon children has a very long shadow into adulthood. So there's a lot of crimes within families. And if you look at ghosts as a whole, what is normally haunted is the family house. Now, talking about crimes within a family is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous dangerous and i've been doing this for a long time and i've certainly felt the scorch marks of the scud missiles of outrage hostility and rage going past my face uh on a regular basis it's very dangerous to talk about crimes within the family because crimes within the family you can do something about when you become an adult right you can confront your parents if the statute of limitations is not expired you can go to the police you can get away you get lots of different things you can do and so talking about abstract crimes is usually okay but talking about crimes that occur within the family structure, whether they are recognized by the law as crimes or not, like the hitting of a child is another thing too. In many Western countries, though not all, you can hit children. You understand that makes no sense whatsoever. It's, it's the worst thing. Of all the people you should be able to hit in society, children would be the last on the list. Not You shouldn't hit anyone, but children should absolutely be the last. If a man hits his wife, that's wrong. But... She has agency in the relationship and she also has choice in the relationship. The agency being she met this guy, she dated this guy, she got engaged to this guy, she married this guy, she had kids with this guy. So she made positive steps and accepted him and rewarded him with uh, love, romance, sandwiches, sexual access, whatever it's going to be, money. And so she has agency in the relationship. It doesn't mean that what he does, does is any less wrong, but she has agency. She chose to be in the relationship and she has... Shelters. She has uh, government agencies. She has welfare. She has um, police protection. She has choices and options. She can get up and walk out anytime she wants. If you hit a four-year-old or a five-year-old, which is disgustingly and depressingly common in the world, where does the child go? Child can't call the cops in a lot of places. Uh, uh, it's legal, right? Well, the child did not choose to be there. And you know, you always hear from the left as well. If there's, I'm excluding Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, if there's a disparity in power. Right. If, if whites are more powerful or if the boss is more powerful, then he or they have to act in an even more moral manner. The moral standards are higher to equals in a work environment, can ask each other out because they don't hold power. But the boss asks out the employee, Ah, that's bad because he's got power. So he's got to have higher moral standards because he's got power. He's got a higher, higher view of how to do things. But there's no bigger or greater gap in power than that of between parent and toddler. I mean... They're five times your size. You have no economic choices. There's no shelters for toddlers. You can't go anywhere. You can't get anywhere. And most places, even if you call the cops, and even if, even if it's illegal and you somehow call the cops, what could happen is your, cho- your, your parents could get arrested. And then where's your provide, provision going to be? Right? We have, right? So talking about crimes within families is very hard. Very hard indeed. So where does it go? Well, it goes to the supernatural. So ghosts, a crime has occurred, and the ghost haunts the area until the crime is revealed. And the perpetrator is identified and punished. And then, and only then, can the ghost go to sleep. Can the ghost live at ease? Think of family crimes. Think of pedophilia. Pedophilia, most likely, will cycle within a family tree until a pedophile is identified, the crime is shown, and he is punished in some manner, or she. Even if it's beating a child. Until it is recognized as an immoral action, until the perpetrator of the immoral action is identified, and until... The crime comes to light and is discussed. The light is turned on and then the ghost, the unease, the horror. Well, then that horror can end. Then the ghost can be free of haunting the scene of his unidentified crime. And it's not just to identify the crime. Because usually if someone's murdered, then the ghost is known. Right? The the cause for the ghost is known. So he was murdered, right? But you have to catch... The person, so it's not enough just to say, "You know I was beaten or I was raped or I was verbally abused, or whatever it was as a child. You then also have to identify and confront the abuser, and this doesn't mean publicly and this doesn't mean in a raging manner and certainly doesn't mean destructively, but you have to identify the perpetrator of a crime wherein you have power over it right and and this is true within families. So ghosts, to me, that they haunt until the crimes are revealed. Perfectly makes sense when you think about family crimes, that you have to dig up and unearth family crimes. You have to talk about them, and people have to take responsibility for the wrongs that they have done. And then, and only then, is the ghost that can't leave. The wrong that can't die, you understand? The wrong that can't... The wrong dies, not just physically, but spiritually. The wrong dies... Because the body dies, the, the, the wrongs live on, right? This is the cycle of violence, say, within a family system, within a family structure. If your parents beat you, well, your parents will die eventually, but the effects that they're beating lives on. That's the ghost, do you understand? It's the immaterial effects of people's prior crimes. And it lives on until the perpetrators are identified. And I think that my experience has been it sometimes can be enough just to identify the perpetrators within your own mind and have moral clarity and certainty about the wrongs that were done to you if those wrongs were done, Then the ghost can rest easy and the next generation can be raised in a different manner. And that has been my experience as a child and now as a parent. And if you want to hear me chatting with my daughter, you can look up Introduction to Peaceful Parenting. I just did it, I think, about a week ago. Night and day. There really has been, I think, almost no bigger change in a family than between my childhood and my daughter's childhood because I don't yell at her, I don't hit her, I don't punish her, I don't, I, I, we negotiate and we have an enormous amount of fun. And from how I was raised, I don't know that there's a bigger change in one single generation. From, you know, being thrown in boarding school and and, and beaten and raged at and, rage and had things thrown at me and verbal abuse and just crazy, like literal craziness. To go from that to how My Daughter Lives is about the biggest change. And the reason why I'm able to make that transition is because of what I'm telling you about. is the identification and the pinning of the accurate blame on the perpetrators of immoral and evil actions, particularly against children. And there's no greater evil than the evil that acts against children. That is, put the ghost of my mother, the ghost of my childhood, the ghost of my entire family history, where this abuse has been going on, as far as I can tell, for a long, long time. So... You identify the perpetrators. You solve the problem of the crime. You find the body. You find the perpetrator. And the ghosts can leave. And life can enter. So, that's ghosts. We'll do... Let's just do two more. I find I could do this all day. But let's just do two more. Happy Halloween, by the way. Vampires. Fascinating. I mean, I know that there's this big, hot and heavy vampire, harlequin, sexy beast approach particularly for for women but for me vampires are fascinating because before we had terms like psychopathy or sociopathy and so on there were vampires now what are vampires well vampires are you know undead creatures that mimic life they don't die they're not mortal they feed on others they feed on the blood of others And let's walk through some of this. So feeding on others, what that means is that you don't gain your sustenance from objective reality, from empirical reality. You gain your sustenance from controlling others. And this is the state. This is certain aspects of religiosity. And this is families to some degree, when the families are dysfunctional. So if you feed off others, if you control others, if your primary source of resources is not material reality or people's voluntary choice but rather your control over them so you think of course uh look at the serf days right the serfdom days you had people who were had some nominal aspects of private property ownership over their land but they were bought and sold with the land and they were kind of tied to the land and the farmers were the people who produced the crops and then the lord outside of the protection he may have given in terms of wartime which wasn't much protection sometimes because he would just draft the farmers But the aristocrat, he did not gain his resources from reality. He gained his resources from other people. And usually through a a combination of coercion and myth-making, which are two sides of the same coin, right? And so if your primary source of revenue is propagandistic or coercive control over others, then you're a vampire. Like, this is how we so, and, and we couldn't identify this throughout most of our human history. We couldn't say, oh man, that Lord is a total parasite and, and he's, he's feeding off us because you just get killed, right? You can say that about the king, you couldn't say that about corrupt priesthoods and so on. And so you had to invent, but you still had this instinct, you still had this moral instinct that there's a difference between gaining your resources from voluntary negotiation and control over reality, nature, versus manipulative, bully and coercive control over people. So we had this instinct, but we couldn't talk about it openly because it'd get us killed or thrown in jail or so sexually and socially ostracized, which genetically they're all kind of the same thing. So we had to create a mythical creature called a vampire so that we could continue to describe that which we could not talk about in a safe manner, in a safe manner. So, yeah, vampires feed on others, and when they feed on others, those others become vampires as well, right? And and this is a complex metaphor. It has to do with parenting and childhood, right? Which is when parents psychologically feed on children, then they hollow out those children, as I talked about earlier, and then those children are more likely to grow up to feed on others, right? So this is one aspect of it. And also when you feed on others and you're successful as a vampire is, then you tempt other people to become vampires. So you think of the amount of money that is made by people like the Obamas and and the Clintons and the Bushes and so on, largely as a result of their, quote, public service, which seems to be service to greed, war, and the god of gold. That's pretty tempting, right? You see the high life lived by lobbyists and politicians and the immunity from criticism that people get from if you're on the left, right? I mean, if if there are sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh, you have to believe, believe, believe if there are sexual assault allegations against Mueller, well, it just paid off, right? So when you see vampirism be very successful, it's tempting for other people to go the same way. Now, vampires are physically attractive in general, have no kids, and live forever. Now, that's interesting, because... When people make bad decisions, it's often because they have a sense of immortality that nature simply won't grant them, right? So if you're young and you say, oh, I'm just going to sleep around, I'm going to do a lot of drugs, I'm going to smoke, I'm going to drink too much, I'm going to... Well, this is out of a sense of immortality that is highly dangerous because you're simply undermining the health realities or the health possibilities of the second half of your life. So the fact that they're physically attractive and immortal and don't have any kids has a lot to do with the bad decisions that rely on... The perception of immortality and we have really scrubbed death a lot from our societies um, partly because if you see death a lot then you make better decisions when you're young if you make better decisions when you're young you don't need to state as much and the government wants you to need it and there is also something kind of chilling that goes is going on in the modern world and it's happened in the past but it's much stronger in the, and this is the people who use their physical attractiveness. Not – let's just talk about a woman who's beautiful, right? Does she use her physical attractiveness in the way in which nature designed her and and generated this kind of attractiveness to, to get a great guy who's going to provide for her, to be a great mom, to be a great homemaker and have a career later after kids are on the side if she wants and all that? Or does she use it to be a model, to be – what is it? Model, actress, whatever, M-A-W – to um to gain attention to have men buy her things to get a sugar daddy well the former is how your beauty translates into the next generation right you get a great guy and raise kids and all that so that's using your beauty in a productive and genuinely fertile manner if you're physically beautiful but you use it only to gain attention or to gain resources that you don't trade in return for actually having children and so on, then, yeah, you're physically attractive. You're gaining resources by manipulating other people. And you're not going to have any kids, right? So this is like a vampire. Physically attractive, manipulative, controlling, and no kids. Vampires are also charming, which is a noted component of sociopathy. And vampires, according to most of the myths, they can't look in the mirror and see themselves. They they have no reflection, right? Which means no identity, which means no self, no, right? You look into the mirror. if If you look in the mirror and you can't see yourself, that is a fundamental aspect of unreality, of unreality. And when you are a parasite on others, when you manipulate and bully and allure and control them and so on, then you don't actually have any productive relationship with reality and you don't really have an identity because all you are is about controlling others. Now, when you try to control reality, which is a good thing to do, right? Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. When you try to control reality, which is a good thing, you end up developing a robust personality based upon empirical principles, rational, rationality, empiricism, objectivity. And it's the only way you can work with reality. If you're an engineer, you can't just make things up. You have to submit to the physical properties of tension and stress and and you name it, right? But if all you do is control other people, you don't have any objective values. You don't have any rational universal standards. All you are is about saying the next thing to win a particular verbal battle and extract resources from others. And so it's funny because when you look into a mirror, you are seeing how reality looks at you. Now, if you look into a mirror and you can't see your own reflection, what that means is from the outside, when reality looks at you, it sees nothing, because you have no reaction, sorry, you have no relationship to reality, to objective reality, so when reality looks at you, you see nothing, which is why you can't see yourself in a mirror. Now, not only do you have no identity as a vampire, but you have no physical integrity or identity either because you can change into various shapes, you can change into mist or a fog, you can change into a bat and so on. And this simply indicates that you can alter your perspective or personality to gain the most resources or domination, simply in the moment, right? Like, just a personal story, like I can remember my mom, she could be raging at me screaming at the top of her lungs over some stupid nonsense, like one time she was convinced that one of my friends had stolen her vacuum cleaner, and this was like weeks of just insane, like, you got to go talk to your friends. And me saying, I'm not going to go talk to my friend. I didn't steal your vacuum cleaner. And then she remembered that she'd lent it to someone. So she'd be screaming at the top of her lungs at me, and then the phone would ring. And she'd think, this is before call display and all that, she'd think maybe it was a, a boyfriend or something. And she'd, hi. You know, like she'd instantly switch to super sweet, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, very nice. And this flipped is no personal momentum or weight or identity. And if you see people do that, it's really freaky and it's really creepy. And it indicates an extraordinarily dangerous personality in general because they have no internal standards. All they do is, like water being poured into a local container, they simply adopt whatever persona or characteristic is needed to get what they want in the situation. So when she wants to dominate me, or basically to uh, externalize her self-attack against having lost the vacuum cleaner by attacking me, and also partly because I was gaining friends and therefore people I could talk to about the abuse I was experiencing at home, it became very important to try and separate me as much as possible from my friends. This is one of the reasons why I was moved from England to Canada when I was 11 because I was gaining more friends and more companions and abusers are terrified you're going to talk so they will often keep you moving around and they'll make sure that you don't have connections with others so putting me in this impossible situation with regarding friendships and go tell your friends not to steal our vacuum cleaner and to give it back which would be an insane thing to do to a friend and, and would not I mean could end the friendship so if if you just around people all they want to do is win in the moment they don't have no principles and and so on like what is it Don Lemon was just talking about how we don't want to demonize people, but the big problem is white people. And it's like, there's no connection to any, like, there's no connection to any of this stuff. When when leftists talk about birthright citizenship and dreamers, they say, well, you know, children, young people, offspring should not be responsible for the problems or the crimes of their parents. So that, that gets them votes, that gets them benefits. But at the same time, they will say that white people in America are completely morally responsible for what their 5% of their ancestors may or may not have done regarding slavery 150 years ago. Like, because both of them get votes, right? The race-baiting politics get them vote from the black community, and um, uh, birthright citizenship and dreamers and so on, defending those gets them votes from the Hispanic community. The purpose is to get the votes. Everything else, they don't care about, right? Whatever I need to say to get the votes, this is chilling stuff. There's no shape. And, and this drives—this is the whataboutism stuff. This drives everybody else insane because it's like— do you not notice that you but they're not contradicting themselves if you understand that all they want is the votes and the power, the power, right? Um vampires are both very strong and very weak, which is very interesting. So vampires are often considered to have superhuman strength, and that's interesting because if you don't have empathy, you can be very decisive. If you don't have empathy, you can be very decisive because your willpower doesn't get all tangled up in what other people feel or need or anything like that. So it is a big challenge. Um, well, it's a challenge for everyone else around you, but your, the complications in your life get vastly less if you don't have any empathy. On the other hand, you, you can't have love or connection or friendship or support or anything like that. And so the fact that they're very strong and yet very vulnerable to me, is is very powerful. They're very strong because they lack empathy. You can't feed on people while empathizing with them, right? You have to dehumanize them in order to feed off them, which is why the largest tax base in the West, which is white males, are constantly dehumanized. And because you, if, you're, if you're preying on people, you can't humanize them. That's the whole, you, you have to, right? The, the lion can't see the zebra as another lion. It doesn't work. So when I say that they're vulnerable, well, they are vulnerable to things like garlic, They are vulnerable to sunlight. They are vulnerable to um, saying no. That's the most amazing thing, right? So vampires, according to many of the stories about them, you have to invite them into your home. They can't come into your home unless you invite them, which is really fascinating and part of the vulnerability. And the fact that evil is helpless if you say no to it is really, really quite powerful. (laughs) It's really, really quite powerful, that you have to invite evil in in order for it to gain power over you. That you have to mistake evil for something else. And once you invite it in, it has power over you. And this is common a lot of times for demonic possession and so on. So the fact that they're very strong but at the same time weak, they can't even cross someone's threshold unless they're invited in is very, very powerful. And it's a way of saying that the evil that's in your life is more voluntary than you think it is, which has been my message for decades, but publicly for 12 years now, that the evil that's in your life is far more voluntary, if there is evil in your life, and often there is, but if the evil in your life is voluntary, it's more voluntary than you think. Now, things like taxation or, or the draft or whatever, right? These things you don't have a lot of control over. But the immorality in the people around you That you have power and control over. So if you have an abusive father, he can't come into your house unless you invite him in when you're an adult, right? Can't come into your house unless you invite him in. Now, once you invite him in, he has massive control over you because parental alter egos within the mind are overwhelming and all-dominating, and they really can't productively be fought, in my experience and my opinion. Can't fight your parents uh, as a whole. I mean, you can see them or you cannot see them. You can't fight them, you, you, if they're particularly if they're abusive, you, they're too powerful in your mind, it's just like can't, can't be done. But the evil that's in your life, if you have and I've said this before with the against me argument, if you have people in your life who want you thrown in prison for disagreeing with them, it's pretty nasty. Now, it's not nasty until they understand this until you explain it to them, then they gain moral responsibility, because they have gained moral knowledge. But yeah, your social circle, your family when you're an adult, you name it, your family of origin, it's all voluntary. Now, everyone wants to tell you that it's not. Oh, you have to see your parents. And it's, it's voluntary. You have to invite vampires in. You have to invite evil into your life for it, it to have great power and dominion over you. And there's some evil we don't have control over, but there's a huge amount that we do in our own personal lives. And that's why you have to invite vampires in in order for them to gain power over you, and often devils as well. Sunlight burning them, of course, is the light of day, and, and you see them for what they are. They can only exist in the shadows. They can only exist through manipulation. They can't exist in objective empirical reality, right? If you work, for most of human history, if you worked with reality, you had to be out during the daytime. You can't farm at night, really, right? You, you can't build a church at 2 o'clock in the morning, because it's dark, right? So you have to usually wait for daytime to work with empirical reality so you can see what you're doing. But if you're manipulating people, if you're controlling people, if you're a thief, if you're uh, a seductress or whatever, then nighttime is the way, because you, you're dealing with people, not with objective reality. Objective reality, you need sunlight, and that destroys the vampires, the controllers of human beings. So one more, it's pretty easy, zombies. So there's some disease that doesn't kill them. But it lures them into a slow-moving tide of humanity that eats brains. And if you're not a zombie, you you have no problem against an individual zombie. But the way that it works, of course, in stories, movies about zombies, is that most of humanity has become a zombie, which is a slow-moving, for the most part, World War Z was a little different, but it's a slow-moving tide of half-rotted, brain-eating, mindless humanity. Well that's democracy. (laughs) We understand all of that, right? I mean, it's democracy and the MPC products of government schools, of other kinds of indoctrination that occur in certain religions and so on. And so they're slow, but they're inexorable. And that's like the spread and growth of state power. It's slow, but it seems kind of inexorable, unless we really push back hard against it. And very few people can think in a democracy, and it's a lot of work to think in a democracy, and the mob kind of turns on you like zombies, right? Because, uh, what was it, in The Walking Dead? I watched a season of that before, just becoming too grossed out. But was it someone had to cover himself in rotted flesh in order to be able to walk past zombies? Well, that's like adopting collectivism and socialism when you're in university or or government schools right you have to adopt the guise of your enemy in order to pass among them unscathed that's like taking off your marga hat when you're walking around a leftist town which is usually to say a town and as if you um, lack religious faith that is right i mean putting that on if you're in a particularly controlling and brutalizing kind of religion that's mimicking that so you have to kind of coach yourself in the putrid in, in in the <laughs> putrescence is that the right word? I'm sorry. I've had these couple of brain fives lately. Like, I could not pronounce Waka. Yoqua. Joaquim. Joaquim. There we go. It's back. Ah, don't you love aging? Anyway. So, yeah, you have to coach yourself in the corruption. Of those around you in order to pass through them unscathed and that's all of the mimicry that a lot of people have to do at work and in school and and in other places in order to not be attacked by this mob right like this uh invasion of the body snatches is another one of these kinds of things and of course what does the what do the zombies do they eat brains right they eat brains and then when you get bitten by a zombie if you lose your integrity to the mob you just become one of the mob and surviving the mob socrates style is a big challenge It's a big challenge. They're everywhere, and there's a, you know... Individually, they're fine, but, boy, there's a lot of them, and they tend to overrun you, and that is, you know, mindless people who refuse to think for themselves, who who have... There's no mass power without the state, really. I mean, there's no mass... Idiots combined are just a group of idiots, but idiots combined with voting and the power of the state become a very dangerous and controlling group of idiots, and so I think that there's a lot in these kinds of mythologies and mythological creatures. So uh, if I I, I can do more, (laughs) I've I've thought about a lot of these kinds of things. So let me know if you find this helpful or useful or interesting. I look forward to your comments below. Uh, Please don't uh, forget. Oh, yeah. Uh, Don't forget the book, The Art of the Argument, at theartoftheargument.com. I really, really appreciate you pick it up. I'm, it'll be very powerful. It gives you a jetpack and jump boots and rocket powers when it comes to debating with people. So, theartoftheargument.com, my new book, Essential Philosophy, out very soon. And freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Vastly, vastly appreciate it. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate. Happy Halloween, everyone. Let's make sure that we have a future where the only supernatural horror that controls us remains in myths and stories from the distant past.